Namaste and welcome to the Modern Mystic Podcast where we are exploring the mystical in the mundane and the magic in the present moment, bringing you ancient tools and technologies into modern day living, yoga, mythic, and healing conversations with expert and visionary powerhouses sharing their stories and secrets with you to help you live an inspired life. My name is Kilkenny, the host of the Modern Mystic Podcast, and today I am thrilled and overjoyed to be welcoming Lama Soltrim Alione, who is the best-selling author of Women of Wisdom, Feeding Your Demons, and Wisdom Rising, Journey into the Mandala of Empowered Feminine. She was born in New England into an academic and publishing family. Her grandmother, one of the first women to receive a PhD in philosophy from Harvard Radcliffe, gave her a book of Zen Buddhist poetry when she was 15. This sparked an interest in Buddhism, and she traveled to Asia in her late teens. At the age of 22, in Bodh Gaya, India, she became the first American woman to be ordained as a Tibetan Buddhist nun, and she lived and studied in the Himalayas for several years. She later disrobed, married, and became the mother of four, then lost a daughter in infancy, and now is a grandmother of six. She co-founded Tara Mandala International, where she is a spiritual director with her late husband in 1993, a 700-acre retreat center in southwest Colorado. She leads a vibrant international community with over 40 groups around the world. In 2007, she was recognized in Tibet as the reincarnation of renowned 11th-century Tibetan yogini Machig Labdrin. She is one of a handful of women lamas in the world today. Lama Soltrim was awarded international recognition as an outstanding woman in Buddhism in 2009 by a panel of distinguished scholars and practitioners in Bangkok, Thailand. Lama, I am so honored and deeply thrilled to be welcoming you to the Modern Mystic Podcast today. Thank you. It's nice to be with you. Well, Lama, I am brimming with anticipation to know what does it mean exactly to you to be a modern mystic? Mm-hmm. Well, that's an interesting question because I think in a way it's been one of my koans throughout my life because I am following an ancient tradition from Tibet that started in the 8th century, and yet I am a modern woman, and I am a mother. And so how do I hold both those things at the same time has been a koan for me for my whole life. And I think my conclusion would be that a modern mystic is somebody who can live within this world, within the speed that we're going now, and at the same time maintain a deep practice so that their presence in this world can be of benefit to others. Mm. So, so eloquent and beautiful. And 
you know, there's so many things to unpack with this conversation that I had in my mind's eye, but that was almost one of the questions I thought we'd punctuate the conversation with. And so it's so beautiful and cyclical. You actually mentioned it right away from the gate, which I love about holding both those positions of being a spiritual leader and then being a mother and how you really threaded into the tapestry of your answer with being a modern mystic. For you, obviously, that's your your dharma and your path. And each person, of course, has their karma and path in this lifetime. You know, so beautiful to hear of someone like yourself that holds seemingly two different worlds in, in both hands and then blends them together so they're not really a dichotomy and they're not really overtones of duality, but how do we really make them those threads, the tapestries that are woven together? And you do that so beautifully with your work. And part of why I love your work is you really give people practical tools to help them do that with their own particular dharma and path. Really, really beautiful answer. Thank you. Now, your spiritual journey and and your life seemingly are so synonymous. And you were a seeker at such a young age and have had such an extraordinary and exceedingly unique path. And so I was wondering if you would be willing to share with our audience what precipitated your traveling to Asia in your late teens. I know in your bio, it's, you know, you talk about a book and you talk about your amazing grandmother. What an incredible thing to, you know, have the degree from Harvard and be a professor in that time. What year was that, that she was holding that position? She, I got her PhD in 1906. Wow. Yeah. But she was the fifth woman to get a PhD from Harvard Radcliffe. Radcliffe was the women's school at that time that corresponded with Harvard. Women weren't allowed into the Harvard library and they had to take classes separately from the men so that the professors had to teach the men, and then they had to go to Radcliffe and teach exactly the same thing to the women. Unbelievable, right? And, you know, this is a little bit more than only 100 years ago. And what an extraordinary matriarchal lineage that you come from in your in your bloodlines. Really, really amazing. And, and of course, that that specific degree that she acquired was in philosophy, yes? Yes, and uh, recently I've been working on a memoir, and so I got curious about why did she give me a book on Buddhism? Like, would she have been exposed to it? And so I researched it and discovered that her main professor for her PhD was Royce, Josiah Royce, And he actually was interested enough in Buddhism to learn Sanskrit and to read Buddhist texts in their original language. And so she did study Buddhism. And also she was a student of William James, who you're probably aware of, Varieties of Religious Experience, very famous American philosopher, Yeah, I never talked to her specifically about that during her lifetime, but I got curious. And so then I tracked it back to the time of Henry Thoreau and Emerson, Ralph Waldo Mm -hmm. Emerson in the early 1800s. And what was really interesting is I discovered 
two women who were colleagues of Emerson and Thoreau, but are, as usually happens, not given the credit (laughs) for what they actually did. And they, one of them founded and was the first editor of The Dial, uh, which was the journal of the Transcendentalists, which was the group that Thoreau and Emerson were part of. And the other one was the first translator of a Buddhist sutra into English. Mm. Yeah. So it was Margaret Fuller was the woman who was the first editor of The Dial, and Elizabeth Peabody was the one that was the translator. So they were all together with Emerson and Thoreau and exploring, reading about Hinduism and Buddhism. And so really, we have in America, a Buddhist tradition that goes back to them. Wow, that is fascinating. I've never heard that. And of course, it makes so much sense what you're saying. Because like you said, that always happens in history. You know, the women are forgotten, their names are never said or eradicated. And how fascinating um, in the time of the transcendentalists that they're were women doing that work and, and translating the, the first Yoga Sutra, you said, yes? The first Buddhist Sutra. The first and Buddhist Sutra. I didn't hear that word. Thank you. The first uh, Buddhist Mar- Sutra. Margaret Fuller was one of the first, if not the first, American feminist writer. She wrote a book called Women of the 19th Century that is still referred back to by writers and later on with Elizabeth Cady Stanton. Mm-hmm. The feminist movement began in this country. They all referred back to Margaret Fuller, and there she was. Her best friend, or at least a very close friend of hers, was Elizabeth, Elizabeth Peabody, who had a bookstore, and she was also the translator of that first Buddha Sutra translated into English. Amazing. Amazing. So yes, I, I read that book in college and recognized her name, Margaret Fuller, but you know, had made the connection. Yeah. So that's so incredible. And I just love saying these women's names and, and learning their stories. And now everyone listening can go research them more and bring them back into the threading of history. And it's a beautiful foray into just you because you being a woman in a leadership position in a world predominantly led by men. I want to get to that. But first, let's go back to what precipitated your traveling to Asia in your late teens, because you it's just such a fascinating synopsis that I've read, but I love to hear it in your words, like from your inner experience. And then, of course, you lived with American yogi Bhagavan Das and Dr. Richard Alpert, which a lot of people know as the eminent Harvard psychologist and psychedelic pioneer. And then you hitchhiked across northern India to see His Holiness the Dalai Lama in Dharamasala. And then by the age of 22, you became the first American ever to be ordained as a Tibetan nun. So can you talk us through that journey and then we'll move towards what it is to be a leader in a world full of spiritual men? Yeah, well, so I went to college, as most people who decide to go to college do, right after high school. And 
found that experience of being in college somewhat disappointing because they weren't teaching what I wanted to know in college. I had gotten stimulated in high school through that book that my grandmother gave me. And then I went out onto the roof of our summer house by a lake in New Hampshire one night in 1963 after reading the book of Zen poetry and thought, I'm, I'm going to try to meditate. I, I had no idea how to meditate, but I thought, I think you're quiet and you don't move. <laughs> that was about all I knew. <laughs> so I sat outside on the roof and I heard pine needles falling on the roof. At first, I didn't know what that sound was, but it was this very delicate sound that surrounded me as I sat out there quietly. And then I realized it was the, the dead pine needles that the tree was shedding above me that were falling. And that experience made me realize how many other things must be happening in the world that I'm not aware of because I'm making too much noise and I'm moving too fast. I sat there in silence with that very gentle sound around me and my awareness began to open out into a larger awareness and so then I went back into my bed crawled back into bed and as I was lying there in bed having had that experience I realized in some way everything was different and then the next thing that happened was in my senior year I was writing a paper on language, on semantics. And there was something in what I was reading that triggered an experience of being conscious of consciousness. And so I sat in, I was going to a boarding school at the time. I sat in the, this area of the boarding school kind of downstairs where you could study and had an experience of really awareness of awareness. And so that was significant. And then I also studied the poetry of W.B. Yeats, who was mm. a Irish mystic. And when I went to college, I already had that interest. And then in my freshman year, I had an out-of-body experience lying on my bed, uh, I was lying on my, my, my stomach on my bed, and suddenly I started going up from the bed and was up around the ceiling and really experienced that my body was up there, not just I was thinking I was up there. And then I kind of panicked and, and forced myself to open my eyes, and then I was back in the bed. And so that got me curious. So I went to the library to try to find answers to what was happening to me. And a book literally fell off the shelf. There was a book by someone named Paul Brunton, who was one of the early writers on yoga at that time. So this is now 1965. At that time, 
there was very little about yoga available. And he was an American who had gone to India and studied yoga and then written about it. And so I read about that and became aware of India. And at the same time, my best friend in my freshman year was Vicki Hitchcock, who had been in India and her father was the consul general in Calcutta, the American consul general, which is sort of like an ambassador, but it's a lesser post. And so when we were sophomores, we dropped out of college, as many people did at that time. So now this is 66. And I went to San Francisco to Haight-Ashbury and joined the psychedelic revolution or evolution. And she left also and stayed in Boulder, where we had both gone to college at the University of Colorado. And then in the spring of 1967, I was invited to go with her to India to visit her parents and, and to work for the benefit of others somehow. And I think our parents were hoping they could get us back on the straight and narrow, (laughs) you know, that we would get into some kind of social work or something. But instead what happened was I kind of escaped from the embassy and then hitchhiked across Northern India to Dharamsala with a Japanese traveler who I had met in, in Kathmandu And I didn't see the Dalai Lama, but he did. He had an introduction from a Lama in in Nepal, and I didn't. But I was exposed to Tibetans, who at that point, so now we're, this is now 1967 summer. So they had come out of Tibet in droves in 1959, so it was still less than 10 years since the Dalai Lama had been out and since many Tibetan refugees had escaped. And so I had the exposure to these people who had lost everything and many had seen their own families shot in front of them by the Chinese. Mm. And yet they were very joyful. And they talk about it and then they just kind of laugh. And I thought, how can, how can this be? Mm-hmm. How can this be happy? And that got me curious about the Dharma and Buddhism. And, and so that was the beginning of my exploration. And then I came back to the United States that fall around Christmas time. So I'd been there about six months in Nepal and India and it was actually at that time that I met Bhagavan Das and the future Ram Das, who was then Richard Alpert, who <laughs> was in India on his own quest. And uh, so they went on what's now the famous Be Here Now journey. Mm-hmm. Met his teacher, Nim Karoli Baba. And I returned to the United States and tried to go back to school, which is what my parents wanted me to do. But again, felt what I want to learn is not here. It's not happening in this school. I left and I made my way to Europe and then 
made my way to the first Tibetan Buddhist monastery in Scotland called Sami Ling. Huh. Uh, yeah, in the in the fall of it was the fall of 1969. Actually, I I, I went there around April of 69, stayed for the summer. And then uh, from London, I got on a VW bus where you could pay, I think it was 100 pounds, which was like $200. And then you could go from London to Kathmandu overland. And uh, so I was on this VW bus. I, I think there were like five other people going for various different reasons. And mine was to get back to the Tibetans. And so after two new engines and being pulled, towed uh, over icy mountainous roads all night in Turkey and passing through Iran and Iraq, Afghanistan, Pakistan, these countries that you couldn't think about doing this with now, Mm. uh, arrived in Kathmandu at the end of 1969. And then... uh, there I met His Holiness Karmapa, who was my root lama, and I began to have the feeling that I should do something. It was something I was supposed to do. And it, I got kind of obsessed by it, and I couldn't sleep, and I was like, what am I supposed to do? What am I supposed to do? What is this? And then I read this sadhana. Sadhana is like a spiritual practice, and that I'd gotten from Trumpa Rinpoche, who I'd met in Scotland at Sami Ling. And it said in it, the only offering I can make is to follow your example. And so I thought, oh, Karmapa's a monk. I should be a monk to follow his example. And so I went one morning with an offering of, of beautiful dahlias. I had friends who... We're living in a house where they had a dahlia garden. You know, dahlias are those huge kind of oh, lotus-like. They're gorgeous. They're one of my favorite flowers. If you yeah. don't know, listeners, what a dahlia is, look one up. Yeah. <laughs> so they yes. had like a whole garden of dahlias. I haven't seen a yes. garden of dahlias. Wow. And huge ones. And I'd never seen dahlias before. I'm from New Hampshire. Mm. So I, I took some dahlias and I went to see His Holiness that morning and walked in with these flowers and motioned to my hair, which was long and in braids at the time and, and a motion to cut off my braids. And, and then he looked at me with this very piercing look of really like looking at my whole karmic stream. Mm-hmm. I love that karmic stream. So beautiful. And then he said, yes. And he said, but not here. I want to ordain you in Bodh Gaya. And so I was ordained on the full moon of January 1970 in Bodh Gaya. Mm. I mean, there's just so many things about that riveting story. But starting from what you just said, and then we can always work a little bit backwards, At the time, in your 22-year-old consciousness, do you feel you were aware of the gravitas of the title and 
position you were stepping into and and then your karma to be welcomed into this unique and really one of a kind situation because you were the first American woman that this had ever been bequeathed to, correct? This honor and this role. Yeah, I felt the power of his presence. I was in a way feeling my way in the dark in terms of what I was doing. I wasn't even a Buddhist at the time. I'd read very little about Buddhism. I'd been exposed to the Tibetans, but I hadn't read very much. Uh, But there actually wasn't very much translated at that time. So I, I was very intuitive, the whole process. And then once I was ordained, I didn't really know what to do. <laughs> so he left. He, he went on with his pilgrimage, and, and there I was. And so I went to Calcutta to try to get a flight back to Kathmandu. And I'd been in Calcutta before, so I knew someone there. And I went to stay in an ashram in Calcutta, And in that ashram, I started having really extraordinary dreams about my future. Mm. And I was in a very altered state, which then once I got back to Kathmandu and I met my friends, they said, your eyes are completely yellow. And I realized I had hepatitis, which Mm. creates really interesting dreams, uh, one of the byproducts of it because your liver is affected Mm. anyway i in those those were kind of prophetic dreams about what would happen in my life and so then i i had hepatitis i had to you know you can't really do anything for it except not eat any fats and rest so that's what i did and 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 during that time i began to study and then eventually returned to the monastery where i had met Karmapa, and uh, studied with some nuns there, Tibetan language, and then began to receive teachings and practices from that lama of that monastery, and did that over the next three or four years, and then eventually returned to this country, and was here for about a year, and then realized I really couldn't proceed as a nun here because there were no other nuns. And I was 20, I don't know, five, 25 or something like that by then. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't drawn to the monastic lifestyle. It was more, I just was drawn to the teachings. Mm-hmm. So I eventually disrobed and married and, and began to have children. So then I was presented with this koan that we talked about in the beginning of how do I maintain my depth of practice, my commitment to the path, and the deepening of my path with being a mother. I have three children. I was brought up in a family of yogis. That's, you know, was my my frame of reference my whole life. And when I was, say, from 10 to 14, I thought I really wanted to be a monk. And, you know, I got chills when you were speaking. And, and when I look back, and even I have one daughter who laughs at that now because she's that age, like 13 or 14, and something will come up and she'll be like, well, mom, you wanted to be a monk. <laughs> but 
I, when I reflect on that with her, what comes up for me is at that point in time, that seemed like the choice. That seemed like to be a female and to be so fiercely committed to one's practices and one sadhana, one spiritual path and practices on that path. That's what I saw around me for the women that I knew who were doing that. Mm-hmm. And so it's a different world now, but I so honor and really can relate to what you're saying and to blossom. And your story is so much about this journey, hearing you speak so eloquently of the divine feminine energy, like you really heeded to that energy. Like when you, you know, even your experience with the pine needles, it's like the softness of the quiet sound and your recognition of how many things perhaps you weren't noticing due to that speed, you know, and that kind of patriarchal framework that we're all living in still and how you heeded to your intuition with all of that, you know, which seems like from what you said, wasn't the norm in your family, was certainly not of society. And even when you showed up and, and to your teacher, you're asking and even your articulation of not even knowing then exactly <laughs> what you were doing in the dark, so to speak, but you heeded the call of your divine feminine within yourself, that deep intuition, that deep listening. And, and it's part of why your life story is so incredible. And then even the practices you offer, I feel like just have that orientation of really listening and softening and all those qualities that are often associated, you know, on the continuum of the more feminine aspects of ourselves and of life, which I talk a lot about this on this podcast. So listeners will know like that feminine and masculine, in my opinion and experience live within ourselves. both. You really tune in and download that you became conscious of consciousness and aware of awareness, right? That's the holding, the feminine. It's it's those huge mama arms. And you're doing that, you know, for people on the inside. And then, of course, with yourself and your life on the outside, with holding space of being a spiritual leader. And then a mama and grandmother. It's just so extraordinary. Would you mind sharing and elucidating for our audience now more about your lineage, which really seems like after you met your karmapa, you became, and you can say it much more, you know, of course, authentically, but how you became really connected to the female yogini from Tibet of the 11th century, Machiglabdran, and how that became, you know, integral part of your, your path and the practices that you offer people, but then to the point where you have been publicly acknowledged as her reincarnated. Yeah. So I think a lot of this has to do with past lives in the sense that my link with the Tibetans and meeting them at such a a young age, and then the recognition of a longing for them for that path is because of past lives with them. And so I think what I would say to your listeners is listen to your intuitions, listen to what's calling you, even if it doesn't make sense in a logical way, listen to what's inside. And for me, it wasn't about the feminine. In the beginning, it was it was the spiritual. That's, that's what I would have called it. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't until I lost my daughter, Kiara, to sudden infant death. And so she was 
a twin of mm. a third pregnancy. Oh, I'm so sorry. Now, we just finished teaching a retreat together. He's also a llama now. But wow. yes, so I lost Kiara, and that made me suddenly awaken to women. And none of the stories that I was reading and that it inspired me were about women, like Milarepa or, or the Buddha or Guru Rinpoche, Padmasambhava, all, all these great Buddhist teachers were not female. And so the death of, of Kiara made me feel that those stories were not what I needed. I needed women's stories. And so that was really my awakening as, as a woman and to the feminine. And so then I began to look for Tibetan women teachers biographies and I found six of them, and that became my first book, Women of Wisdom. Mm -hmm. And one of those is the biography of Machik Lapchum. And so at the same time, I had started to learn her practice before I was a mother. When I was in India, I had gone back after being in this country, and right before I disrobed, I was uh, studying her practice. I had heard it. I'd heard it one night in my teacher's house. I'd heard this chud practice being done, which is done with a drum and a bell. And it's, it's very distinct, uh, very different than any other Tibetan practices. Mm -hmm. And so I was doing that and then found her biography and then eventually began to teach her practice under Chojo Namke Norbu, who was my teacher for many, many years, a great Tibetan Lama. So I became aware of, of women teachers through the research for my book, Women of Wisdom. And also I began to look at women's spirituality and how would spirituality be different if it was created by women for women? Would it be different? I began to ask some of those questions, and there were some very interesting scholars, this was around in the early 80s, who were looking at this question of women's spirituality, mainly in the United States, but also in England at that time. And so that was my awakening to the feminine, really came out of Kiara's death, and then continued. And I sort of inadvertently became a spokesperson for this, it wasn't like I decided to be. It was just my life that took me to the need for these stories and, and the recognition that they weren't there. And so once I got going with that research and investigating this, I realized what a big lack it is in our world, that we don't have spiritual paths for women, by women, we have pretty much only by men, for men, and then women get to participate according to the men, you know, what they're allowed to do or not allowed to do, like can't become a priest or can't do this, can't do that, can do this, but not that. So it's all controlled in that way. So I became aware of all those things, which are pretty obvious once you start becoming aware of them, but I just had never, it had never come up for me. 
And so that's how I got interested in, I guess you could say, women's spirituality or spirituality for women. And I know now there's so many questions about gender and, you know, the limits of of that and, you know, what is a woman anyway. And I believe also, like you said, that we have both those parts in ourselves and those energies in ourselves. And and you can be in a female body, but really feel that your dominant energy is male and vice versa. Or you can feel that gender is irrelevant, which is what Tara said. There's a, there's a great story of female Buddha, Tara, where she's about to reach full and complete enlightenment as a princess. She was princess um, in ancient times. And and then her male monk teacher says, oh, you're about to reach enlightenment, but it's so too bad that you can't because you're in a female body and you'll have to wait till you can come back as a male because only men can reach enlightenment. And then Tara said to him, any notions of gender are just for fools when you're speaking of enlightenment. <laughs> but since many have chosen the body of a man to receive enlightenment or to reach enlightenment in the body of a man, I will reach enlightenment in the body of a woman, and I will always return in that form. And so she does this great sort of double thing of saying it's actually irrelevant. And since in the relative world there are these distinctions, then I am going to do it as a woman. And so within Buddhism, we really find a lot of gender fluidity, particularly tantric Buddhism, because uh, there's there are different deities, which, which are not like, uh, sort of pagan deities that you worship as some sort of external force, but really embodiments of enlightened energies in various forms. And there are male and female deities. And so a male, a man, might be doing a female deity practice where he visualizes himself as Tara or as Vajrayogini or another female figure. And a woman might do Chenrezig or Vajrapani or one of the male deities. Or in some practices, you visualize yourself as both simultaneously in union. And so there's that kind of gender fluidity in Buddhism, as well as in a philosophical sense, the understanding that that there is no such thing as gender, really. It's a, it's a construct that we create with our minds. And so Buddhism gave both the relative answer of, yes, there is gender, and yes, the males have been dominating for a while, and no, there is no real gender. That's just for fools who don't really understand how things really are. And so I think I hold that. I hold that view. I am very much a feminist in the sense that I feel we need the feminine in the world. We need that in our decision-making places. At the table where decisions are made, we need 
equal representation of male and females because they do see things differently and they experience the world in different ways and have different kinds of experiences. And we need that. And at the same time, I can see and understand at the absolute level, there is no gender. Just such a rich, phenomenal answer on so many levels. And just to circle back to how you spoke of with the deity practice, because in my yoga tradition, which ironically is tantric, (laughs) so there's that bridge between our two traditions, you know, that idea that the deities, whether masculine or feminine, act like a mirror. And when we embody their attributes and when we think about their stories and such, then they reflect back to us that part of ourselves that is like them, that we're trying to cultivate, is how I think about it. And I have a lot of friends who are talking, you know, of course, because it's such an amazing exploration, I think, particularly with young people today, of this notion of gender. And, you know, I feel like that's the the next generation, so to speak, like thing that they're busting through. And a lot of my friends, when we have these discussions, they say to me, well, Kilkenny, you have this paradigm you just grew up with. And I think about that. And it's true. Like I grew up with Krishna, <laughs> who looks very feminine. But you know, it was driving a chariot in war, you know, and there was so much blending of that. And it is so fascinating. The other thing that I think you spoke of, which I would define as spiritual and psychological maturation, which is the ability to hold space for the two realities. One level of reality, I think of it as, you know, higher. Some people would say like the ground of, you know, being. Would, however you want to say it in the way of semantics, there's like one level of reality that's foundational that there's oneness and there's pure awareness or the void or w- again, whichever semantics you want to use, pure consciousness. And ultimately that's our destination. And when we're in our practices, we attempt to align with that and experience that. And then the reality is we do also live in a world that is dualistic at times. Mm -hmm. And so being able to hold space for both, it's not one or the other. You know, Mm -hmm. if we just walk around all the time and say, well, there's no masculine, feminine, anything, and we're all one, right? That's when they're not healthy boundaries. But if we walk around and saying, you know, the other, the other, the other, and divide everything so much, that's when we have war in the extremities. And so I just really honor and love the wisdom of what you shared of, of holding space for both and how we have to teeter as modern mystics, really, you know, back and forth between being able to hold space for for those different understandings and viewpoints and then melt and marry them. Yeah. And also our gender fluidity that we can identify as masculine or feminine. Yeah, really, really so true. And it can it can show up in so many ways for different people and it can shift in moments and oh, it's a whole nother podcast. Okay. One of the things though I want to get to my absolute, I mean, I, I don't even want to say favorite because I love every part of your work. I love every word of every one of your books. <laughs> but I really want to make sure we touch on just one aspect of your profound work, which is really rooted in the practice you had mentioned of Chud from the Tibetan Yogini. And the way that you've 
I want to say midwifed it into a brilliantly modern and applicable everyday life situation and, you know, challenge with really practical steps. A lot of times I know the word shadow has become so popular, you know, and that's steeped in Jungian tradition, which I love and I know you're a fan of from what I've read. So I just wanted to ask you about your lineage from the Tibetan yogini Machig said, what we call demons are not materially existing individuals with huge black forms frightening and terrifying anyone who sees them. A demon is anything which hinders liberation. And so that quote just sends me to the moon and back with fascination and joy and, and hard work and all the things that we experience on our spiritual paths and sadhana. Demons, that word, which to me is very synonymous with, you know, the modern word shadow. Can you extrapolate on this idea of our demons from a spiritual perspective and then talk about how you practice and help hundreds and thousands of people work with their own shadow slash demons? Mm. Yeah, well, in, in uh, Sanskrit, the word for demons is Mara or maras, and essentially a mara is anything that blocks us from freedom, anything that blocks us from liberation. And so this practice of feeding your demons that I developed and that is the title of my second book is a five-step process that I developed to translate or make accessible the teachings of the 11th century woman teacher, Machik Labtran. And so her practice is a shamanic Tibetan practice done with a drum and a bell in which you undergo your own death and then your body becomes food, becomes an offering for uh, these various obstacles, the demons. And so when I worked with this myself in the traditional way, I realized, oh, this, this really uh, is, could become a sort of very foreign idea for a Westerner to do. And, and how could I teach it in a way that it's more practical, accessible, and useful in the West? And so then I developed the five steps of feeding your demons uh, where you find the demon inside of you, and and our demons are our addictions. They're depression, they're anxiety. They they could be a physical illness that is plaguing you. It's anything that keeps you from being completely free in the moment. And we all have them, and we all have different ones. You know, we let's say depression is is a demon for many people, but each person lives that in their own unique individual way. And so with feeding your demons, you, you feel where you hold, let's say, depression most strongly in your body. And then you see, okay, if that had a, a color, what color would it be? If it had a shape in my body, what, what shape would that be? And so on. And then eventually you externalize that 
you move it out of your body in, into a figure, personified being, and then find out what it wants and what it needs. And that distinction between the want and the need is an important distinction because the need is the fundamental attachment issue need that we have for security, safety, and and that kind of thing, whereas the want is how that presents itself. So let's say with depression, the depression presents itself as, as wanting to immobilize you. You can't get out of bed. You don't want to do anything. You're depressed. But what's the need under that? And often there's a need for safety. There's a need for love. There's a need a deeper need that's under the way that's manifesting. The same with anxiety. And so then you find out the need and then you you feed it. You feed it how it will feel if it gets what it really needs. So that whole process then feeds something on a very, very deep level within us and then transforms that demon energy into an ally. That process is is very useful, and now several scientific studies have been done on it that have shown that it has a 33% improvement in depression, anxiety, and addiction. More than mindfulness, more, more than most things. <laughs> and so now there, that study is about to be published, and then there'll probably be other studies. But the point is really that you're meeting, you're feeding, not fighting. And to me, that is a feminine approach to try to talk to, to speak with, to incorporate and, and nurture the enemy rather than killing it, <laughs> trying to, you know, literally... Completely. I, I, when I, I was thinking before you even said that, just right, right? Because that's what typically females do, right? Nurture, feed, literally. Yeah, it just, it's so, so brilliant and so true. And what we resist persists, right? So, you know, it's a very psychological practice. Like, you know, think of it as psycho-spiritual, you know, the blending of those two beautiful traditions of East and West, because it really is known, you know, of course, that, you know, anxiety, if we, if we fear our anxious feelings, they grow. Like anyone who's experienced, you know, acute anxiety, same thing with depression, right? So that, again, presence of being more spacious, being softer, aka, you know, feminine, but really the path of, like you said, nurturing and opening and working with and being in the horizontal, circular, you know, almost uterus, you know, paradigm is so profound. And I hadn't heard that about 33% improvement with things like depression, anxiety, you know, addiction. I know it's huge for whether drugs, pornography, alcohol, money, which are so rampant today. Um, So it can just really apply, I feel like, to all Maras slash demons slash shadow. You know, that's what I love about this practice that you've really developed and modernized um, because it really can be so applicable, I think, in, in so many circumstances 
And it's a real empowering tool that you can do with oneself, which is what I also love. I think it's very um, important to emphasize that there's an autonomy about it. You know, you don't need to go anywhere. You don't need to talk to anyone else. You need to get your book, Feeding Your Demons. So one thing I'd like to uh, also point out is that the feminine isn't always gentle and soft and nurturing, that there's also a fierce feminine that we also need. And my third book, Wisdom Rising, talks about that need for the fierce feminine. And it doesn't mean the angry, you know, the angry feminist, which uh, seemed extremely threatening, uh, it's it's about women being able to own their fierceness, and that's important because it is an aspect of the feminine. Men are so scared of it that it became the witch and the bitch, and mm-hmm. uh, w- and women are often so quick to distance themselves from it, but it's actually the fierce feminine is really important because we need to be able to say no and stand up for that. For example, now with Roe Roe versus Wade, women are, are manifesting in a fierce way and they need to, to have the rights over their own bodies and their own future. So uh, that's an important thing to know and to remember that the fierce wise feminine is is very important and we shouldn't shy away from her but rather incorporate that aspect and own that aspect which has also been taken away from us so true and so important and thank you for emphasizing and really bringing this up because like you said in the story of tara you know, she says, oh, I'm going to come back as a woman. Bam. That is fierce. <laughs> you know, that is clear. That is directive there, you know, and, and even with the word demons, I love that you cho- chose that word, you know, instead of shadow, because to me, that sounds more fierce. Yeah. You know? If it gives someone anxiety, of course, you can replace it with shadow. I always encourage people to use the words I feel comfortable with them, but Part of what I love about your work is like, yeah, face your demons. That's fierce. (laughs) You know, withstand childbirth. That's fierce, you know, (laughs) and it's so, so important and and really, really um, great that you brought that up to emphasize that true, that expression of the feminine being clear and also the feminine being autonomous and being able to do practices, right? Because I know like even in my yoga traditions, you know, early on pre-8th century in my understanding and studies, women weren't allowed to do any practices whatsoever. It took the fierce feminine, I think, to really be bold enough the women who initially in my lineage and other lineages, those first women to start to do spiritual practices in male traditions, you know, that is fierce. And what you're doing is fierce, you know, being a leader. And I want to ask you about that. You know, I'm one of the only female lamas in the world today. What do you, why do you think this is so? And what's it like for you? 
you know, do you go to like retreats and, and you're the only female llama? Yes. Uh, yes, that can happen. So it's true because of patriarchy. That's a simple answer that it, Buddhism is a patriarchal tradition, that Tibetan tradition is patriarchal. And, you know, if you confront many lamas with that, they'll say, oh, no, no, it's not. You know, there's Yeshi Sogyal, there's Machi Labdran, we have Tara, we have Vajrayogini, we have all, all these representations of the, of the enlightened feminine. And, and so they'll say that there's not a problem because of that. But then if you ever go to any gathering, like if you go to a teaching with the Dalai Lama, who's on the stage with the Dalai Lama? It's usually 99% male monks. They're all, all the lamas are, are male. Uh, that doesn't mean there haven't been historically just as many enlightened females, but they have been kept out of the religious hierarchy. And so there are some now uh, also in, the, in, in Tibet or in the Tibetan tradition, there's more male uh, women teachers, but often they're on, they only teach women. You know, it's sort of like they're, they don't have enough status where they could teach men mm -hmm. as well as, as women. That's not entirely true. Uh, there's a few that can get over that gender division and teach both but for me uh it's it was very very difficult i i suffered a lot uh, it's a it's a longer story than i can tell here but when i began to emphasize the feminine and talk about its importance i was called dualistic and they didn't seem to think that thousand years or two thousand years of patriarchy was dualistic but mentioning the female or the feminine that's dualistic so yeah it was pretty intense what happened to me because of that and I went through a real descent and actually a year-long personal solitary retreat to try to decide if if the feminine was really important or if I should just stop talking about it and kind of toe the line. And during that year, which was 2001, 9-11 happened. And when 9-11 happened, my thought was, where's the women in the lives of men that did that? Where's the feminine? And where's the feminine in the American response? There was only one person who voted against the invasion of Iraq after 9-11, and that was a woman of color, a woman of color in Congress. So we have a problem in this country. We have a problem in all the world religions, and it hopefully is changing, but I was just on this a world peace panel two weeks ago where people from different traditions were there to pray for world peace, and it was all men except me. Mm. 
all men, you know, a Muslim, a Christian, a Hindu, some other Buddhist, all men. And it just seemed like so obvious to me that there was, that's the problem. That's why we don't have peace. Mm-hmm. But uh, nobody was talking about that. Came my turn to offer a prayer for world peace. I did mention, you know, have you, have you guys noticed <laughs> that you're all men here? And have you guys noticed that uh, you are starting wars? So who knows what would happen if the feminine was more present? I think there would be less wars and more talking and more working things out through negotiation. Because if you have birthed a child, you know what goes into it. And you really be much more hesitant about sending people to war and having them be killed. So true. So true. I remember after my first child leaving where I had given birth, And it was the first moment I was parted from him and Mm. crossing the street to go pick something up at a store and just looking around and, and thinking, oh my God, every person I'm interacting with is someone's child. And I had grown up, you know, practicing where you look at every person you see and you say Jai Ma and you think of all these practices that were a reflection of that intellectual understanding. And I've had the experience of doing spiritual practices where you look at every person and you see them as a child of God or whatever, the goddess, different, different, you know, streams. And yet it wasn't until I gave birth, like you're saying, and then went to the store and the first cashier I saw, I almost started to cry. I just couldn't stop looking at him and like the gorgeousness of him and the beauty and the humanity. And it was just the next level. I mean, it was like 10 million stories down in the way that I felt that is the the gift of giving birth, you know, and like you said, knowing what goes into it and living what goes into it mm-hmm. and that experience that's so unique to, to having a child in that way. Yeah. Ugh. Well, Lama, would you be willing to share either a closing benediction or some words or, you know, one minute meditation to punctuate our time together today, whatever would feel right. So what we do in Buddhist practice at the end of our practice is to share the merit. And so let's do that. What that means is that you gather up any positive energy that you've accumulated through your meditation or through a conversation like this and feel that. So all of you out there take a moment and just feel the positive energy that's been generated in you, the longing to benefit others that's been generated. Feel that in your heart and then offer that out to benefit all beings everywhere. Give it away. Spread it to wherever it's most needed. That was so moving. Thank you so much. 
So where can folks find out about your brilliant work, your books, and offerings in this world? So there's a website, which is Tara Mandala, T-A-R-A-M-A-N-D-A-L-A dot org, O-R-G, taramandala.org. And that's my organization, and it has as a pretty substantial webcast possibilities, things to listen to, and also retreats. Uh, there's also online courses, and there's a center in Colorado called Taramandala that's a 700-acre retreat center with a three-story mandalic temple dedicated to the sacred feminine in Buddhism in Pagosa Springs, Colorado. So all of that is on the Taramandala website. Also, I have Facebook. Lama Sultramaleone is my public figure Facebook page and also Instagram. And we do quite a bit there as well. And also every Sunday morning at 9 a.m., Pacific time, I have a program called Llama Live. And that comes through my public figure page on Facebook and also the Tara Mandala Global YouTube channel. And I also interview different people on Llama Live. So it's just one hour that uh, is meditations, interviews, and prayers, transmissions of various mantras and so on. So that's another way that people can find me. And thank you so much. It's been really a wonderful conversation with you. Oh, well, I can't wait to visit you in Colorado someday because I want to and I will. That's my fierce feminine saying that. And I didn't know about the Sunday programs that you have. So that's really incredible for people. Go check those out. That's 12 o'clock Eastern Standard Time, 9 a.m. Pacific Time. That's right. Yeah. Amazing. Amazing. Well, I am overjoyed to be offering a free PDF to all of my Mystic Monthly members, you beloved people. You're going to get a PDF that outlines the practice of feeding your demons that Lama alluded to with its five stages. And on this PDF, her brilliantly downloaded steps to working with your shadow, aka demons, your vices, addictions, feelings of inadequacy, egocentricity, all sorts of things. So we all have them. Find out how to spiritually and psychologically work with them. So if you are a current monthly member, enjoy this amazing gift of information and huge gratitude to you as this what really allows me to offer this podcast. If you want to support this podcast while supporting yourself and aren't a monthly mystic member yet, head on over to my website, modernmystic.love and get my entire yoga, meditation, and mystic hack video library, which is on a gorgeous and user-friendly platform and includes all sorts of phenomenal discounts and free offerings from my guests, like this PDF as gifts to you. 
I also offer astrological chart readings in addition to my coaching client work. So to book either one of those, head on over to modernmystic.love. Folks are loving this time with me. And when you get an astrological chart reading, you get a copy that's recorded of our session together, along with a picture reference for the rest of your life. And my coaching clients are just having so many breakthroughs and just love having the guidance and support, which helps make one have quantum shifts in their life. Lama, when I first got the Dharma download to birth this podcast and I made a list of people I wanted to have on it, you were on my initial list. So thank you so much for the honor of being here today. And thank you for your years of practices and dedication to your path because your words are truly an osmotic transmission. Like the fruits of your practices, I can feel living through them and feeding us with them. So your deeply embodied Buddhist living and teaching is really food and medicine for this world. Thank you. Pranams. Namaste. Thank you for taking these words in. I hope they ground, inform, and inspire you on your journey of the mystic path. If you like what you heard, please be sure to rate, review, and follow the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whichever podcast platform you use. It is so appreciated. Also, check out my website, modernmystic.love, where you can find information about my very exciting monthly mystic membership. My members have unlimited access to a robust video library, which includes short videos that are easily digestible, sharing practical ways to integrate mystical living into your day-to-day life. These compelling videos cover topics such as how to ground, protect, and grow your energy, how to develop your psychic abilities, how to connect to your spirit team, shadow work, inner child work, tarot cards, lots of Western astrology, of course, in addition to syncing up with the rhythms of nature and so much more. I've gotten so much positive feedback that these videos are game changers for folks. Also included in the membership are over 100 alignment-based yoga classes of all different levels, meditation and breathwork classes, so you can work from the inside out or the outside in and up level yourself as you become the next version of you. Not to mention my mystic members get all sorts of bonus content and discounts from my visionary podcast guests. So check out modernmystic.love and take a peek there as there's a free sampling of some videos waiting for you. Lastly, if you are looking for some conscious conversation and compelling community, check out also our private Modern Mystic Podcast Facebook group. Keep on meeting the present moment where the magic lives, one breath at a time. Namaste. Namaste.